Welcome to Israel. It's midnight from Jerusalem. Our weekly virtual worship service and a collaboration between the Congregation of the Word and loveisrael.org. Let's begin with a reading from the book of Psalms for our call to worship. Psalm 95, and we're going to read the first three verses. So I would invite you, just don't listen, but be an active participant. Take out your Bible and follow along with us, looking at God's word, reciting God's word as we do. All of that plants the scripture within your soul. A very important principle to follow. So Psalm 95, beginning with verse 1 and concluding at the end of verse 3. Lechu neiranena ladonai, naria litsur yeshienu, ne kadma fanav betoda, bismirot naria lo, ki el gadol adonai, u melech gadol al kol Elohim, which means, come, let us shout unto the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Now, in this first verse, I translated two different Hebrew words in the same way. Now, normally, this is not a good thing to do. We should make a distinction between them. But these two words, although they're different, they are most similar. And the best way to to translate them is to shout. It is a shout of great emotion, oftentimes great joy and anticipation for what God is going to do. Verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving, with praises, and once again, let us shout unto him. And this is the word shout that was repeated secondly in the first verse. Finally, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king over all Elohim. Now, I chose this because recently we've had questions concerning this term Elohim. Sometimes it can be referring to other gods, but realize when the scripture speaks of other gods, they are not acknowledging that there are other gods. There is only one true living God, the God of Israel, God the Father, the Father of our Messiah, Yeshua. When the scripture uses the term gods, oftentimes it means simply idols, those things that are worshipped, those things that are, are interacted with as gods, but they're simply the imaginations of one's mind, made of wood and stone and metal and such, they are not gods. Now, secondly, this word, and this may be the most relevant for what we're dealing with now, and that is when it says that that he is a great God over all gods, what it's speaking is of the term judges. The word Elohim has within its meaning that of one of authority a judge, one one that renders things properly. And there are indeed leaders, judges in this world, authorities. And this scripture is saying, ultimately, 
It is only God that is sovereign. He alone will be the one who ushers in a kingdom where the judgment that will be manifested will be a judgment of righteousness. Let's move on to another passage of scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4, as we, we testify of our faith in one God. And this faith in one God, in no way is it in conflict with the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God who has revealed himself in three persons, but nevertheless, God is one. Now, understanding this doctrine, it speaks greatly to the primary purpose of it is to show the divinity of Messiah. And frequently I say that there was never a time that Messiah did not exist. Messiah was not created. He does not equate equality with God, a thing to be grasped, taken, achieved, because he is fully God. So this doctrine is very important in understanding the, the identity of Yeshua and the truth concerning one God in three persons. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 4 where it says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, V'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, Bekol levavcha uvakol nafshecha uvakol meodecha, V'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher anoki mitzvacha hayom al levavvecha. Veshina Natan Levanecha, Ve de Bartam Bam, Beshiftecha, Bevetacha, Uvlectacha, Bederch, Ushakbecha, Ukomecha, Ushartam le ot al Yadecha, Vehayule totafot ben Anecha, Uktavtam al Mizzopetecha, Uvesherecha. And now let's translate this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all. And this last word is meodecha, the very essence of who you are and what you possess. These things which I command you today upon your hearts, that is, they should be upon your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and this implies daughters as well. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes, speaking about the tefillin, the phylacteries. And you shall write them upon the doorposts of your houses and upon your gates. Amen. Let's now go into a time of prayer. Father God, we, we come before you wanting to hear from you this evening. We want to be people that receive revelation, that know your truth, and implement your truth into our life. Father, what a joy it is to have confidence that you are our Savior, you are our Lord. And Lord, we come before you tonight knowing that you are worthy of all praise and glory. Father, we do shout with joy. We do exalt your holy name. We praise you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
we, we come before you making our prayer requests for those that we know who, who are in need of your help. A touch of your hand, your healing, your, your restoration, your forgiveness, your ministry unto them by means of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we, we know that you and you alone are the solution to every aspect of our life, that when we follow you, that you will bring clarity, purpose, and joy into our lives. So, Father, we pray to be better stewards of our resources, better individuals in submitting and obeying your word, being instruments of your glory, and pursuing your righteousness. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is perfect, a God who is gracious and merciful, forgiving, compassionate. All these things, God, we are in such desperate need of your, your love. And we thank you that your love is a great and abounding love that knows no limits. And Father God, that we can receive this love fully in a new covenant relationship with you. By faith, through the work of Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection, and our acceptance of this, and acknowledging that we want to turn away from sin and embrace you and your truth, your standards, your purposes for a life. So Father, we know that you are indeed a God that is great, a God who is loving, a God who has a marvelous and wonderful plan for a life. We exalt you in that blessed name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God teaches us that through submissiveness, he will position us where we need to be. So as we begin this evening, we need to ask ourselves a simple question. Are we where God wants us to be? You'll never arrive there by chance. You'll never stumble upon the will of God. The only way is when we utilize the revelation of God, that we respond to the truth of God, and here's the key, that we submit to it. It is submissiveness that positions us where God wants us to be in order that we might serve him. And this is certainly true in the life of Esther. We saw last week as we concluded chapter 2 that Esther has been made queen. But something odd, peculiar. We see that once again that the king began to assemble young women, virgins, beautiful women, to Shushan, the capital. And the most likely reason for this is that Esther would not reveal her heritage, her people, and the king wanted to know. Now, notice, Vashti defied the king. She was no more, at least no longer part of that royal estate, no longer queen. But Esther, out of submissiveness to Mordecai, her uncle's instruction, he commanded her, do not tell of your heritage, of your people. And even though there could have been a great consequence for obeying this, she remained, and here's the word I want to emphasize, she remained 
submissively faithful. Those two concepts go together in a believer's life. We submit, and it's that submissiveness that manifests faithfulness, and which is an invitation to God to get involved in our life. I also mention several times how before we hear the wicked name of Haman, this enemy of the people of God, Esther is there in the palace, the queen, and God has positioned her there in light of what's going to take place. And that taking place is going to begin today. So take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Esther, the Nigilat Esther, the scroll of Esther, and chapter 3. Notice how it begins. Achar hadvarim ha'ele. After these things. We've learned this. This means that everything that we have learned has a connection in this book of Esther with what's going to happen now. All these things that we may have seen as unimportant, unrelated, not of the greatest significance, all of them, what was recorded in the first two chapters, all were done by God for the purposes of God in order to manifest his faithfulness, his deliverance to his people. And the principles that we see in this Migilat Esther, the scroll of Esther, are so foundational and so relevant for the people of God in the last days. So we read here in chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus, he, and the word here is Gidal, which is to promote, to make great, give significance to. So King Ahasuerus, he promoted this one, Haman, the son of Hamdata, the Agagite, and he lifted him up and placed him upon his throne. Now, there is a, a difference between some commentators, but his throne, what is the significance of that? That, that Haman received his own throne or that he was given, and this is what I believe, he was given, and we'll see this in a moment, he was given the king's authority. We're going to find out at the conclusion of our study that, that Haman is going to do something. Probably we'll see this and begin with this next week when Haman gave the king a great sum of money. And in exchange, the king agreed to Haman's plot to, to exterminate the Jewish people. And he received from the king in exchange the king's signet reign. What does that mean? That he had ultimate authority to rule over this kingdom. So whether it's his own throne that was placed close to King Ahasuerus, or whether he had access to rule and make decisions sitting in the king's throne, the outcome is the same. Hamad, we're going to see, is going to be in control. And that's what he wants. He wants to rule over this empire. In the same way that in the future, Surah HaMashiach, the Antichrist, is going to rule over an empire. 
So once again, look at the second part of verse 1. And he, this is King Ahasuerosh, he lifted him up and placed him upon his throne above all the cabinet officials, all the different cabinet members that were with him. So the end of verse 1 tells us that this king has made Haman unique, different from his previous position of being a cabinet official. He's now over all of them, and this previously was, was the position of the king. Verse 2, it gets even more peculiar because we read in verse 2, and all the servants of the king, which were at the gate of the king. Now, remember, one of the things that we've already encountered concerning Mordecai, and we'll encounter this over and over and over throughout the scroll, and that is that Mordecai positioned himself there at the gate of the king. And therefore, Mordecai would be subjected to what verse 2 is going to reveal to us. Look once more. And all the servants of the king, which were at the gate of the king, Korim umishtachavim lehamad. That would be that they would, would bend and they would bow to Haman. Now, this term that we read, Korim, we find that in the Hebrew liturgy, in the prayer called Aleinu, that this same term is used, and it derives itself from the Bible, as we see now in other places, as relating to a type of worship. Also, this bending the knee and bowing all has to do with submissiveness. And so now, all the king's servants, they have to demonstrate submissiveness. And again, this borders on, and I would say that it fulfills this idea of worship. Mordecai is being challenged. Now there's a law in the empire that everyone, the king's servants, all these important cabinet officials who are at the gate of the king, they have to recognize in a very significant way bending and bowing to Haman. Now, because Mordecai is under the authority of the commandments of God, this would be in conflict. And here's a biblical principle that is so simple to understand. And we see it in many different places, both in the Old and the New Covenants. For example, in the book of Acts, in the book of Romans, we find that, yes, we're supposed to be good citizens and in general law-abiding citizens, but when a government decrees something that is in conflict with the Word of God, it should be obvious. It shouldn't take a great deal of spiritual maturity to understand that we obey God. And at times, that may mean that we have to disobey the civil law and the leaders. Why? Because God 
is our judge. He's above all other judges. That's what we saw in the call to worship. So we need to remember this, and Mordecai is a great example of that. So all the servants of the king, which were at the gate of the king, they would bend their knee and bow to Haman. For thus the king commanded concerning him. So now it's very clear. They did this because the king, not necessarily that they had done it in the past, certainly they had not. Not that they wanted to do it or perhaps even agreed with it, but because the king commanded this concerning him, thus they did. But notice what it says, U Mordechai. And, and I would submit to you that this letter, va, in this case, U, has to do with but, in contrast to. It is a very important one letter that says, but Mordechai did not bend, bend the knee, nor did he bow. He was defiant. Now, this should stand out because what happened to Vashti when she defied the king's order? There was judgment. There was a great consequence. We've already seen that Esther, she defied the king by not revealing her people, her heritage. And now, as, as Mordecai commanded Esther to obey him, and he heard from God, we'll see this clearly in the weeks to come, God used this in Esther not revealing her people. And now Mordecai is being challenged to do the same thing by defining the king and not bending the knee and bowing to Haman. And what's going to happen to him because of this defiance? Well, let's look on to verse 3. And the servants of the king, they said, the ones who were at the gate of the king to Mordecai. Now, they understood that this was defiance. This understood. They understood that this was disobedient. So they said to him, Madua, which means why. Why do you transgress the commandment of the king? Now, what they're saying is true. He is transgressing the commandment of the king, a civil authority, a law of man. But we know why he did it. And it's going to tell us because he is a Jew. What does that mean? That term means that he recognizes, he is thankful, and he praises God. And praising God can only be done in obedience. You cannot praise God. You cannot demonstrate thankfulness to God in the midst of disobedience. So what we're finding here is, in this book of Esther, a book that has relevance for the end times, there's going to be a challenge. Now, let me bring in, recently, I've completed a, a message concerning the seals and the marks that we read about in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, and, and what we find concerning those in Revelation 14. So these things, these seals and marks, different words, by the way. But the point here is this. 
there's coming a time on this world when people are going to have to submit to the Antichrist in order to buy and sell or disobey him and suffer great consequences. And why would someone disobey this world leader? Because of faith in the God of Israel. Because of being a disciple of his only begotten son, Yeshua the Messiah. So this book has instructions for us. What Mordecai did and Esther nearly 2,400 years ago, we're going to be challenged if we're alive in the last days to make this same type of decision. So these individuals, middle of verse 3, the other leaders, servants of the king, cabinet officials, they said, why do you transgress the commandment? And it's that word mitzvah. Mitzvat Hamalek, the commandment of the king. Verse 4. Now we're going to see why. And it came about as they were speaking unto him day and day. Now they really wanted to know, why aren't you doing this? I mean, this act of acknowledgement, this act of obedience to the king, not a hard thing to do, but it has great significance. We might see this as being a little thing just in some way to acknowledge respect, but, but the problem is the terminology here. Although other people may not know that at that time, these other cabinet officials, the phrase Korim, Umishtachavim, has great spiritual significance. And here's the, the principle for us. Just because the world doesn't see the spiritual significance, the harm in doing this, what the problem might be, they may be totally ignorant of that, and probably they are. But if you are, are scripturally literate, if you know the truth of God, we know that we can only pledge allegiance, only show our, our faithfulness, our obedience in a worshipful context to our Lord and Savior, God the Father and God the Son, and of course, the Holy Spirit, we submit to him. So they came about, and they were saying unto him, unto Mordecai, Yom Vayom, day and day. And he, I like this, Velo Shema Alehem. He did not listen unto them. Now, I believe, again, this is a highly significant biblical truth. He just didn't listen to them. Why? He was listening to God. And that word listen is the same word, Shema. Remember how I, I've defined it in the past. It's just not hearing. He heard them, but he didn't respond to them. That's what Shema is, hearing with a response. He didn't respond to them. He gave them no credence, no significance whatsoever. Why? He knew as a covenant member of God's family. He knew that such behavior, Korim Umishtachavim, was sinful, was blasphemous, was idolatrous. So he would not listen to them. And they told Haman to see if the words of Mordecai, that they would stand. 
that, that what he said on why he did not do it, if this was acceptable, because we see at the end, ki higid lahem asher hu yudi, for he said unto them that he was a Jew. So the question is, is that sufficient? Would that statement, I, I can't do that because my God doesn't allow it. His instructions, his commandments prohibit me from, from bending the knee and bowing and paying homage, that type of respect to a human being. That type of respect only belongs to the living God, the God of Israel. So now, and I would underline, highlight the significance because they wanted to know if this would, his words, would stand. Would this, this be okay? Would this get him off the hook or not? So the question is, when we obey God, what will be the outcome? And here's the answer. Whatever God determines or whatever God allows. Just because someone suffers and may be put to death because of disobedience, in no way does this limit or attack the sovereignty of God. Because ultimately, we do not judge what happens in this world. We do not judge that in any way in regard to the sovereignty of God or the will of God. Why? It is only when God and this is the primary message in the book of Revelation, when God brings his throne to earth and he sets things in order, he executes justice and righteousness, and God will set in order those things that were done against his will, that we suffered for, for obedience. God has all of eternity to set this proper, and he will. So do not look to the temporalness of this world and expect God's righteousness to be to be manifested it won't be this is a sin-stained world it is a world of disobedience a world of falsehood and a world of darkness it's only when the light of the world sets up his kingdom then we'll find the order of God so we end here with these cabinet officials them wanting to know notice what it says if the words of Mordecai, if they will, will stand or not, because he had told them that he was a Jew. Verse 5. And Haman, Haman in Hebrew, when he saw that, that Mordecai did not bend the knee or bow to him, Haman, he was filled with chema, that is a hot anger. It is an anger that, that, that usually manifests itself out with a rage. And this is Haman. He is a man that is, is virtually almost always out of control. You're going to find as we go through this book that Haman, we've already seen the foundation. He wanted to be king. He wanted the glory, the honor, the prestige of the king. And who does that sound like? Well, if you read Isaiah 14, 
you will find that Hasatan, the devil, Satan wants to put his throne over that of God. He wants to be worshipped. And here in the same way, Haman, who is a, a type, a, a prototype for the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist? Well, the Antichrist, in my understanding, is, is a type of ruler who manifests a kind of Satan incarnate. Now, we know Yeshua, the true Messiah, the only Messiah, is God incarnate, that is, God in the flesh. Well, the Antichrist is going to be a kind of satanic incarnation. And this Antichrist is going to want to be worshipped. This is what we see strongly, strongly revealed in Megillat Esther, that Haman wants to be worshipped. And now, in the verse, verse 5, he was filled with, with rage, a great hot anger, verse 6. Now, because of this hot anger, we see something. Verse 6 tells us it was despicable. It's a word which means that of, of, of low regard, not enough in his eyes to stretch forth his hand against Mordecai alone. But it says, because they told him that, that it was Mordecai as a Jew, it says he also wanted to stretch forth his hand against the people of Mordecai. So he wanted to exterminate. This is what verse, verse 6 is telling us. He thought it was contemptible only to kill Mordecai, but all the people of Mordecai. And therefore Haman sought to lash mead. This is word to destroy. And this word means to utterly destroy, to, to wipe away, to annihilate. So Haman sought, this is what he became obsessed with. He sought to destroy all the Jews that were in all the kingdom of Achashverosh, the people of Mordecai. Now, you see something. You see that he wanted to annihilate, exterminate the Jewish people. Why? Well, that phrase, I'm Mordecai, the people of Mordecai, is most informing. Because he understood something. Haman was wicked through and through. His wickedness called him to behave, caused him to behave foolishly. But he wasn't unintelligent. He understood that it was Judaism, the religion, and we'll come to this in a moment, that was the cause of Mordecai doing this. And therefore, he rightly concluded, if it's not just Mordecai who's not going to pay me homage, worship me, but all the people who are the people of the same faith, the same religion of Mordecai, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to be a hindrance in opposition to what I want, which is I want to be worshipped. I want to have others pledge their allegiance in the fullest sense unto me. And therefore he realized it wasn't enough just to kill Mordecai, but all the people 
of Mordechai, verse 7. Now, many times I'm criticized about the emphasis I put on numbers. And I want to say something very, very important, and that is this. I do not ascribe to gamatria. Gamatria is that, that numbers have a significance, the numbers of words. So, so words contain letters, obviously. And when we add up those numbers of the letters, they have meaning. I totally reject that. That is not what I, I deal with. I reject gematria. Saying that because a word like the term nature has the same numerical value as the, the uh, word God, and therefore God and nature are one, that's a false teaching. All these things with gematria are from the pit of hell, in my opinion. Do not use it. What I'm talking about is something different. I'm talking about when we look at numbers, not letters and their significance, but rather when we look at the number itself, when it's written in the text, the number 2 or 5 or 7 or 12, those numbers have significance consistently. And what we find here is that there's going to be numbers given. And these numbers have great significance to the reader. Look, if you would, to verse 7. It says, Be'chodesh harishon. In the first month. And this is, it says, Hu'chodesh Nisan. So we're talking about the month of Nisan. This is the secular name that comes into the scripture that's used. In the same way that most people call months also by the names in their own culture and language. But we know biblically, for the most part, we have the numbers of the month, the first month, the second month, the third month, just like the days of the week. Biblically, did not give them names, just numbers. And we know that the first month, Nisan, is called, is given a name in the Bible, in the Torah, Aviv. But here we have the term Nisan. Look again at verse 7. In the first month, it is the month of Nisan. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerosh. Now, this has significant revelation for us. Because the month of Nisan, that first month, is the month of Passover. What should come into your mind when you hear Passover? Redemption. So, the month of Nisan, conveys to the reader the context of redemption. Then we have the 12th year of the king. The number 12, 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. So we find that here, the, the book of Esther, the scroll is revealing to us that God's at work. God's moving. And he is going to use these events that are being put into to place this anger of Haman, Esther being queen, Mordecai's leadership. All of this is going to be used for the month of Nisan, redemption, the 12th year of the king, 12 Israel. All of this is going to bring about a, a redemption, a deliverance for Israel. 
a good thing is happening. So as bad as it is that we see in the previous verse where it says, Vayivachesh Haman Lashmid et Kohayudim, that Haman, he sought to exterminate, destroy all the Jews. Verse 7 tells us, God's got this under control. He's going to use this for the redemption of Israel. Verse, verse 7. Now, Haman, he wanted to know through idolatry when to carry out this wicked scheme. And therefore, he did something. We read here in the middle of verse 7, he peeled poor. He, he began to cast lots in order for the future. The word goral. The goral is a, a lot, and it's for a future purpose, a future action. So he began to cast lots for there to be something revealed to him concerning the future. And he did this before Haman. He did this casting lots to know the future day after day and month after month until it was revealed to him, this is the context, that he should put this plan that he had into effect when it says on the 12th month, remember, 12 relating, relating to Israel, the month of Adar. Now, Adar, because of what we learn from this book of Esther, we know that there's going to be a festival that derives from these events called Purim. Purim means lots. And God used what Haman was doing this casting of lots, in order to, Haman thought, in order to fulfill his desire. But in the end, it was going to bring about a type of redemption for the Jewish people that would take place in the 12th month, meaning that it had kingdom significance because Israel is a kingdom word. So all of this is of great significance. Verse 7 tells us God is at work. He's got this under control. And up until this time, no one, no one knows but God. And God has been working in Mordecai, who has been instructing Esther in regard to how to respond now, even before. See, this was Haman's own thought. He didn't voice it out yet. That's coming in the near future in chapter 3. But until this time, only Haman had this in his mind. But God knew it. God knew it even before Haman knew of this plan. And he began to position things correctly. Well, one more verse, and we'll conclude. Look at verse 8. And Haman said to the king, King Ahasuerosh, there is one people. Now, here again, I would underscore that term, one people. One having to do with unique, one having to do with God. We prayed, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. One relates to God in the Bible. That's its message. So when we look at this in verse 8, when he says, there belongs a people 
a people of God. That's how we read it. He sees it as a people, a particular people. But we should read it as the particular people of God. And notice what he says. They are scattered and separate, different. The word here is the word meforad. It means separated from, distinct, unique. So there's a people, we know, a people of God who are scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provenances of your kingdom. And notice what he says. Their religion is different from all the people. Well, historically, there were many different types of religions. Every people had a different religion. That was fine. The problem was this was the true religion. And this is going to be seen in regard to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come upon the scene championing religious pluralism, which means everyone can do what is right in their own eyes. Their religion is, is justified. And what's going to be the problem is if anyone says, no, it is the truth of Scripture that reveals the religion of God. These other things are false. We're seeing now the beginning of the Antichrist spirit in uniquely, uniquely persecuting, coming against the coronavirus manifests this very much, that there was in many places a, a, a actions, there were actions taken against believers. Not other religions, but believers. Now, they would say this is for all religions, but they would enforce it adversely against believers in many countries and in many states in the United States. So this same principle is manifesting itself today once more. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there belongs one people scattered and separated among the peoples in every provenance of your kingdom. Their religion is different from all the people and, and also from the religions, the religion, the decrees, we might say, of the king. For they do not do these laws of the king. That's what he's saying. And, and to the king, it is not uh, uh, good. It's not worthy. It's not equal, is what it literally says, to, to allow them. Meaning it's not something that's, that's going to be of worthwhile to allow these people to, to exist. This is what he says. And then next week, when we come together, we're going to see that, that plot that Haman has how he's going to speak to the king in order to fulfill his desire to exterminate, lashmi, to destroy the Jewish people. We see once more that God, he is sovereign. He knows all things. He is not controlling Haman in doing that. Haman is utilizing his free will in opposition, in defiance to God. God knows this, and he will allow it to a certain degree. God is free. We said he's sovereign. 
to step in anytime he wants, when he wants, and do what he wills and how he wills it. He's sovereign. But frequently, God, he will allow time. He will allow freedom. He will allow those things that do not please him, that are not his will to take place. But be assured, all of that is going to stop when God establishes his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, justice, of his will being, being manifested. And if we have great faith in that day coming, it is going to give us perseverance. It is going to cause us this faith, this hope, to trust him and be obedient to him and leave the consequences for our obedience to God. Whatever happens, we know that the world's actions are temporal, but God's judgment, his blessings, his promises are eternal. Have an eternal perspective. Understand the truth concerning the kingdom of God. Well, I'll close with that until next week, and we once more enter into chapter 3 of this scroll of Esther, a very important chapter, setting things up for the manifestation of God's faithfulness. Shalom from Israel.